0: Uh, we were we were at our, our planning meeting this week, and we were talking about whether or not to do this moment because we know how horrifying it is to introverts. And literally across my phone came an article from the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical kind of Christian or- organization magazine. And I got to read it to you because it's like point on for this. You you know escape rooms. Are you familiar with that that kind of craze? So here's the article, and this was a picture that was accompanying it. And this is satirical, it's sarcastic, so you can laugh. As the escape room craze continues to sweep the nation, one new escape room promises to be the tensest, most terrifying experience of them all, the church meet and greet. (laughs) People who sign up for this horror-packed experience will be locked in a room with extroverted church members. They'll have 60 minutes to discover clues, locate keys, Solve puzzles to exit the room, all while being pestered by friendly church asking how their week went. <laughs> At the escape room's grand opening, hundreds of terrified participants ran screaming the moment they were locked in the room. So far, no one has escaped. <laughs> so th- thanks for doing that, especially introverts. I'm with you. I've been Sherry, I've been an introvert. So well done. Uh, let's read our, our scripture passage for today. If you want to follow along, it's from Mark chapter 3. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means son of thunder, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Many of you uh, know my story. Some some of you don't. Uh, I was at a church for, for 18 years in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was a really amazing church, amazing experience, one of the biggest gifts of my life. And then the Spirit of God began to work in my heart and my wife's heart at the same time. To kind of shake us up, to let us know a transition might be happening and, and end up being one of the hardest things I've, I've ever done. Uh, leaving the church was really difficult, healthy, growing church, but leaving my friends, leaving our friends, leaving our relationships in which we were known and loved was way, way more difficult. I didn't anticipate how hard. It would be. When the spirit began to move in us and we, we follow King Jesus, so anything he wants us to do, we're going to do. And we were kind of like, uh-oh, something's happening. Is it happening to you? We put together a discernment group. And a discernment group is basically we gathered uh, people who loved Jesus, followed Jesus, had wisdom, and knew us and loved us. And the fact that that night we had our, our living room filled with those types of people is What a gift. So I'd ask them to pray for a week. What's God doing with the Rosensteels? We need wisdom. We need confirmation. So we gathered that night, had some tea, coffee, cookies, gathered in a circle, and then we prayed for about an hour. Just hey, pray as you're, as you're led. Speak forth prayers. So there's a lot of silence, a lot of prayers, and then we ended that time, and I I asked the simple question. I was like, What did you hear? And they answered in tears, and and we answered in tears. Because we all felt deep confirmation that what we had been feeling was right, that God was moving us on from this church in this community. It hurt, it was painful, it was sad, but also mixed into those tears were, were incre- incredible gratitude. The privilege of, of doing life with people in which you're you're known and you're loved. I came out almost five years ago uh, in, in February, and I came out four months before my family. My wife's a teacher. She had to end, uh, finish up school, our girls had to finish up school, pack up the house, sell the house. I came out early, incredibly gracious woman from our church here, allowed me and my dog, Golden Retriever Elijah, to have a room. So stuffed Elijah in a small little space in my Prius, packed it to the gill and headed west and I, I wept all the way to the Iowa border. I'm not kidding you. Same thing, just the, the loss of intimate and how we've been defining that word in the series is being known in love relationships. You've been incredible, you were incredible those first couple months, Uh, the church was in transition, it was really hard, it was difficult, but the most difficult thing was the loneliness that I experienced. Not because people weren't nice or friendly or that people didn't like me, they liked me, but no one knew me and loved me yet, and that's, that's lonely. That's difficult. That's hard. It reminded me of when I was in my late 20s and I moved from the East Coast where I'd spent all my life to Madison for 18 years. Same thing. Along the way in my journey as an introvert, as someone that it's scary to step out of hiding and be known and loved, I have made a covenant with myself and with God that I always wanted to have six friends that knew me and loved me. Why six, you might ask? Because I want... Coffin carriers. <laughs> I mean that. I mean it's it's funny, but it's also not, right? I uh, one of my jobs as a pastor, been at a, a ton of funerals, done a ton of funerals as part of the part of the deal, and and I think this has gotten worse. I'll sometimes just sit back and observe, and there's that really powerful moment where the coffin's lifted up and the coffin carriers come and they exit the building, and I. <sighs> More and more, I can kind of see it on their faces that one, two, three of the coffin carriers are like, what's this guy's name again? <laughs> I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. So we got to make friends. we got to cultivate intimacy. That's what we're talking about. We're in the third week of a series called Together. And we talked about this loneliness factor in our country. Studies show that 50% of us qualify as lonely, meaning we don't have enough relationships in our life where we're known and we're loved. And that loneliness, on average, can cut 15 years off of our life. That's how serious this is. Some have called it a loneliness epidemic. And the scriptures affirm that. In the very opening pages two weeks ago, we looked at the creation story. It's good, it's good, it's good. One thing's not good. God said it's not good that the human was alone. So God did something about that. We need more than God. That's what that passage tells us. God could be totally sufficient and is foundational to our relationships, but God created a world in which we needed more than him. We're made for relationship. We're not meant to be alone. And we see that in the opening pages. Last week we looked at what's that barrier? What's that thing keeping us from intimacy of being known and loved? And it comes back to this biblical word sin, which can be a confusing word and... In a misunderstood word, basically sin is when we disconnect ourselves from the life source that is God and we plug into things that are not sufficient to give us life. We go our own way. We try to play God. And we saw in that passage the ramifications of that is that we're cut off. That's the Hebrew word for alone. To be cut off from God, cut off from others in relationship. The immediate effect was, remember, shame. And that shame means to hide were naked and ashamed was the immediate effect that happened between adam and eve and everyone and god the hope is to come out of hiding and that's how i define the word vulnerable that's the hope for intimacy we have to come out of hiding it's horrifying it's scary it's costly but there is no other way and we find the strength to do that in the work of jesus and the power of his spirit because jesus came put on flesh did life in community and then he hung alone on the cross so you wouldn't have to be alone and I wouldn't have to be alone. He was naked and unashamed on the cross so he can offer us a pathway to coming out of hiding with boldness so we can do life once again with God and one another. So that's where we are in the series. So today we're going to talk about why don't we have more friends, why are people lonely? If we know how important it is and we kind of understand what keeps us from it, why don't we step into that? And today's going to be very practical. We're going to talk about how we have to make friends and how we have to cultivate intimacy. So, this passage, Mark 3, if you want to turn to it on, in your phones, in your Bibles, uh, Mark is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Mark is channeling Peter's eyewitness accounts, so, picture Peter in Mark's ear telling him these stories. Mark is likely the earliest gospel written a few decades after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As we're going through Mark, it's a typical early gospel story. Jesus is beginning to heal and teach with power and gain this reputation. There's misunderstanding and there's excitement and people are starting to try to gather around him. And then Mark tells us Jesus goes up on a mountainside and he calls these 12 boys, and they were boys, to come be his traveling companions. Ladies, you might say, hey, where's the ladies? That's a good question. Remember, the Bible's not written to us but for us in first century, ancient Near East, rabbis like Jesus would gather male learners and disciples. That's how it was. It would have been inappropriate and would have harmed Jesus' admission at this point for him as a single man, a single rabbi, to be traveling around with a bunch of ladies. We know, though, in the broader group that traveled with Jesus, there was tons of women, and they played a huge role. Women were at the foot of the cross. Women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Women were the key leaders in the early church. But that's what's going on in this passage. So Jesus gathers these these boys around him, and then Mark takes time to give us their names. And if you're reading through Mark, we've got all these fabulous stories of demons being cast out and storms being calmed, and, and then we get to these verses, and you're probably like, why did John pick these verses? Because they're tedious. We tend to just fly over them when all the names come. But they're put here for a reason. They're put here to show us how to cultivate intimacy and make friends. So Mark lists the names. We have Simon, who's given the name Peter, which means rock, and his brother Andrew, and James and John, the sons of thunder. The four of them are from Bethsaida. They're fishermen. They, they knew each other. And then we have, uh, we have Philip and Bartholomew, which means son of the furrow. He's a farm kid. We have Matthew, who was a tax collector. They're hated by the Jews because they worked for the Romans. Thomas was a doubter, James, son of Alphaeus. This is not James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't come to faith till after the resurrection. This James became known as James the Lesser, poor guy. Thaddeus, who is called Judas in Luke's Gospel. Simon the Zealot, zealots were a revolutionary group. They tried to overthrow unsuccessfully the Roman Empire. And then last and certainly least, uh, Judas Iscariot. This word Iscariot means literally uh, dagger man. It's likely that Judas had spent some time as a hitman. <laughs> and Jesus asked him to take care of the body. So you just never know what Jesus is going to do. What does this have to do with cultivating in- intimacy? Everything. These are not just Jesus' disciples. These aren't just kids learning from a rabbi. Yes, they were that. These are his friends. These are his friends. And we see that in the very intimate language. You can picture Peter whispering in Mark's ear to put it this way. It says, he appointed 12 that they might be, what? With him. It's incredibly intimate language. We don't talk talk like that about somebody unless we're known and loved. I be with you, not just alongside you. I want to be with you. That's why he appointed them. These were his coffin carriers, except it ended up he didn't need a coffin, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> the intimacy we see it on full display in the nicknames. This is what we do with people that we love. At least I do. We kid with them. We joke with them. Hyperbole comes in. Caricatures come in. People get known for things. This is what we do in our friend circles, and we see this. I'm confident Jesus is the one who gave these nicknames in love. I think he was a joker, a kid, or a prankster. He loved them. They were his friends. You have Peter, who was rockhead, because he was stubborn. The Sons of Thunder, they're always arguing and wrestling at night. They're like, would you guys cut that out? James the Lesser, maybe he was like a really small guy or something. Thomas the Doubter, he was the glass half-empty guy. Like wah, wah, wah wah, was Thomas. Simon the Zealot, hey, Simon, remember when you tried to overthrow the Romans? (laughs) That went well. And then you have Matthew, the tax collector. You have someone who worked for the Romans and someone who tried to fight the Romans. I bet Jesus had them room together just for kicks. And then you have Judas, right? Hit man. We know what Judas did. He denied the Lord and yet Jesus was his friend. How do you think that felt? Not good. The intimacy in this passage shows us what we've been talking about was true for us the first two weeks is true for Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Jesus isn't meant to be alone. Jesus was, came into this world, put on flesh, and did life best in community. He was better together with others as well. Sometimes pick a gospel. Mark's a good one. John, whatever one of the four you want to pick. And just read through it over a couple days and just watch Jesus. This is just a good thing in general. But watch for this. How much of the time was Jesus with other people? You're not going to like the answer, introverts. (laughs) He was with people all the time. You might say, John, but there's all these verses about Jesus going off by himself to pray. Yes, but they're rare. If you highlighted all the passages he's with people, your Bible's going to be bright yellow. And there is a distinct difference between solitude and loneliness. Solitude is a spiritual rhythm that we need to seek. Solitude is something we choose. Loneliness is put upon us. As a result of sin. Solitude is something we choose for our health. It's standing before God and saying, God, I want to be known and loved by you. I'm choosing that. I'm choosing to be vulnerable with you, God. So then we can return to our world and be known and loved by others. Yes, Jesus illustrated solitude. The rhythms of solitude. But he also illustrated doing life with others. It's absolutely everywhere. Our big idea today, I've already repeated it several times, I'll keep repeating it so that you remember it, is that we have to make friends. We have to cultivate intimacy. Let's pretend I go over to your house and we're staring at your backyard and it's a normal lawn and we're drinking coffee and staring out and you're like, what do you think of my garden? And I'm like, what garden? And you're like, that garden. I'm like, what garden? You're like, that garden. And we go on like that for a while. And then you tell me, it's like, say, June, you tell me back in April, you took some tomato seeds and some pepper seeds, and you went in your backyard and you just kind of threw them out. And I'm like, did you till the soil? No. Did, did you bury the seeds? No. Have you watered that lawn? No. Miracle Grove? No. And then I'm like, what garden? Simple illustration, but this is how we approach our relationships with people. None of us in this room probably that are reasonable would think that that would work, to take seeds and just throw them out there, and then we don't have to do anything else in a flourishing, beautiful garden is going to appear in June. But this is how we approach our relationships, especially as we get older. I'm 48. I can speak from that perspective. It doesn't just happen. So many people I meet are just like, yeah, well, I'll make some friends at some point. Well, it'll, it'll happen. No, it won't. Just like that garden won't happen. You got to make friends. You got to cultivate Relationships. There's no shortcuts with this. So for the rest of the message today, I'm going to give you two principles. We're going to get very, very practical. Even if you just glean one thing from today that will help you connect better and build intimacy, I will be incredibly grateful. That's been my prayer for all of us, myself included. These two principles come from relationship experts. They've been tried and true by professionals that do it for a living I've experienced them to be true. And I think we'll see Jesus as our model for intimacy. He lived these things out. Are we ready to go? So pay attention. I'm telling you this is relationship miracle grow. So just write this stuff down. Will we have coffin carriers that know us and love us? That's what's at stake. Number one intimacy takes time time is our most precious commodity the value of a commodity is based on its importance and its availability so like air is really important obviously but it's readily available so it's not that valuable unless you don't have it oil is is really important but it's limited so it's more valuable time i would argue is our most valuable commodity it's 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 the most important thing about us it's our lives how we spend our time and yet it's it's not renewable You spend it, and it's gone. And we know this in our interactions with one another. We know it deep, deep down. When someone gives us their time, we feel valued. It's amazing, because we know how valuable it is in our own lives. Intimacy takes time. We can't shortcut this. And Jesus, this is on full display with Jesus. Just read the Gospels. Watch the scenes. He wanted to be with them. And boy, was he. Boy, was he. Just in your minds, what we know but what we don't know could fill libraries of the experiences this group had. Here's a couple things they did together. Here's some time they spent together. They studied scripture together. They prayed together. They went to church together. They took naps together They went on boat rides together. They climbed mountains together. They went on road trips together. They went fishing together. They even went shopping together until Jesus started flipping over all the tables. I could see Peter being like, hey, I was looking at that pendant, Jesus. Simmer down. They they even went on car rides together. I kid you not. The scriptures tell us the disciples were together in one accord. So you're a little slow on the uptake in one accord, like a Honda Accord. I like it when my my favorite humor is when people laugh and groan. But you're going to remember that joke later in the week and smile at some point. You're welcome. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, talks about how, and he studies this in depth, that it takes 10,000 hours to master anything. And he gives a ton of examples, from music, from sports, from any field. To become a master, to become excellent. 10,000 hours. If we say Jesus spent 10 hours a day with the disciples over three years, let's say he took a couple days off, guess what it comes to? 10,200 hours. hours. He's a master at intimacy. He shows us right here in the pages what it looks like to make friends and to cultivate intimacy. More than anything, I'm convinced the most important thing they did together is they ate together all the time. Isn't it staggering, all the meal scenes? And it's like a high-carb environment in the first century. He had to have like a gym membership. And I mean, they're just always eating. Every scene is eating, 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 eating. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. In the ancient Near East, if you still go to the eastern part of the world, I would even argue Western Europe, you'll find that eating with someone is intimate. It's what I would call sacred space. We're inviting someone in to get in. When, I, when I've traveled in the eastern part of the world, when you get an invitation to have a meal with someone else, it is sacred. It's intimate. You're eating with them. We've kind of lost that in our country, and it's sad. I just read that average American, we eat one out of five of our meals in a, in a car. <laughs> We've, just, we've lost this, and we've got to reclaim it. The University of Oxford uh, did a study that showed a direct correlation between eating together and relational connection. And they think it's the, the, the oxytocin in our brain that when we eat together and we smell and we talk and we laugh, that it releases oxytocin that connects us with one another and begins a feedback loop, that you want to do more of that. I mean, it's right there, the Scripture's. The disciples and Jesus ate together. They did life together. They spent time together. Another little nuggets here in this passage is just hidden that we just blow through it. If our time is limited, follow this. And if it's so valuable and so precious and we can only do life with so many people, we must choose wisely who we spend time with. I tell our girls this all the time. They just roll their eyes at me right now, but I'm hoping it sticks. Who you spend time with shapes you. Someone uh, once wrote that, I just read this the other day, that we become the average of the five people we spend the most time with. I think that's true. Our friends shape who we become. Don't let your friends choose you, choose your friends. And we see that right here in this passage. It says that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called those he wanted, he wanted. You've got a limited life. You've got a limited amount of relational capital. Who do you want to spend time with? Choose wisely. The the, the book of Proverbs says, the righteous choose their friends carefully. There's a lot at stake. But let's not put too too much pressure on ourselves because Jesus didn't always get it right. Because the last friend he chose was Judas and we know what happened there. And that goes back to last week. That stepping out is courageous. And it means risk and even Jesus got hurt. But the alternative is to just put our, our, our hearts away forever, and that's not how we're meant to live life. How, do, how does this look for me? Uh, Dallas Willard once said, he's a philosopher, he said that um, intimacy is cultivated through shared experiences. And I really have experienced this to be true and believe it to be true. About 10 years ago, when I was lonely and longing for relationships, I began a backpacking trip with, with some close friends, and we go to a different national park every year. And that's a shared experience. It's amazing. We're climbing mountains together, and we're hiking and seeing wildlife. And that's why I did it. I I have started this thing where I've invited 10 to 15 local pastors that I kind of know, that I have some connection with, but I want to know more to go to Mount Angel Abbey once a month. On the last Thursday of each month. Just kind of like, hey, let's go. I mean, it's scary to put out that text, right? Here we go. We're going to carpool together, grab lunch, and let's hang out with the monks, and let's do this. Shared experiences, how we use our time. The number one thing that I do, and many of you have experienced this, maybe awkwardly, is I invite any breathing human I meet to a meal. I mean, you've seen me out front with my card. You know, it's awkward. And then some of you have given my card to like three times, and that becomes more awkward because you're not getting back to me. (laughs) I've had, since I've come here, I've lost count. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meals. I'm trying to live what I'm preaching up here. I believe it. You got to make friends. You got to cultivate intimacy. Number two, though, it, just the time investment's not enough. Intimacy, cultivating intimacy, demands attention. If we spend time with someone and it's distracted time and we're not focused on them, it will have the opposite effect because they will come away saying, I'm not worth their time. And it will deplete that intimacy tank. So not only do we have to give time, but we have to give quality time where we pay attention. Researchers in Canada studied the brains of 2,000 living humans, and they watched for brain activity, looking for how long the average person could pay attention. And they found that our average attention span is almost exactly the same, you'll never guess it, as this creature. Actually, it's worse. Our average attention span, they found, 2,000 human brains is eight seconds. And the goldfish is nine seconds. We pay less attention than a fish. I mean, there it is. It's difficult. This is challenging. I'm convinced that wasn't Jesus. I don't have video of him interacting. I hope that's available one day that we could watch. I have the Gospels, and I envision them, and I step into them, and I imagine them. And the way people responded to Jesus, they were just as human then as they are now. He had to be paying attention. He had to be. People flocked with him. They longed to be with him. And when I'm picturing these Jesus scenes, I just picture him being fully immersed in that person. I don't think he was ever distracted because he loved them. He wanted to be with them. You, you, you You have the woman at the well. He's locked in. The bleeding woman that touches his robe, he's like, who touched me? And there's this huge crowd, who touched you? You have Zacchaeus who's up hidden in a tree a tax collector. Jesus sees him and says, "Let's go for a meal to your house." The woman caught in adultery. Little children who everyone ignored, not Jesus. Lepers who no one would touch. Jesus touched them, the blind man who he could have just been like healed. And he saw he grabbed mud and put them on his he's touching his face. He's just there. He was paying attention. He's modeling for us what it looks like. Some of you might say, well, I bet Jesus wouldn't be as good at that if he was on social media because he'd be distracted. I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt he'd be on social media. And I'm not here to hate on social media, but I'm preaching in a real context here. And we all have these computers in our pocket, right? And there's great value there. I, I like technology, there's a lot of good things. I'm on social media. But it can be a huge, huge distraction. And it gives us the sense of connection, but it's false connection. It's false intimacy, and that is dangerous. Putting it in its proper place of just kind of marginal connection, staying in touch, fine. If we're looking to it for community and intimacy, good luck. The, uh, we average, On average, we touch our phone 2,617 times a day. Facebook now has 2.37 billion users who, they know this, they just came out with a report, their average user spends 53 minutes a day on Facebook or Instagram. We only spend an hour a day eating and drinking, 19 minutes a day reading, 17 minutes a day in exercise, and four minutes a day in social events. We spend an hour each day in our one precious lives on social media. There's even a term for it now, fubbing. Are you familiar with this term? Snubbing someone with your phone? They're talking to you, you're out at lunch, and you're like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fubbing. It's horrific to experience. You just literally feel like, hey, I'm not here. You don't care. Let's not be fubbers. Don't be a fubber. Cultivating intimacy demands attention. It's like putting money in a relational bank account. That's why it's called paying attention. When we pay attention to someone we're with, we're investing them. We're, we're looking at them and saying, you, You're valuable. All right, so let's get even more practical. How does this look? And this is where I'll go to relationship experts because they're relationship professionals. And I believe in them. Counseling's wonderful, and these people know what they're talking about. Here are two just very practical things go with both, go with either one. Relationship professionals will tell us we need to practice relational nowness or intentional presence, being intentionally present with people. And they said, this is it, it's three things. This is how you're relational now. I'm with you. I'm present with you. They said, you have to say, I see you. You have to, like, I'm giving you my eyes. You, ha- you have to. You can't be, like, over here or fubbing them. I see you. That's step one in relationship nowness. There is a, a study that just came out that if we lock eyes uninterrupted with another human for four minutes then we create instant intimacy. This is a real study. So I read that and I went home. I was like, hey honey, I read this study. Would you like to stare in my face for four minutes? And she's like, that's creepy. And I'm like, is that a no? So we've had to take baby steps, Corey and I, in that. But let's start with trying to be focused on the person and being with them and giving them our eyes. Two, we give them our ears. and. We don't listen to give a response, we listen to understand. One relationship expert said, The three most powerful words in a relationship are not I love you, but it's help me understand. And most conflict and fights come not from what is said, but what is not heard. I see you, I hear you, and we do it with our full bodies. I'm here, I hear you. And we can even hear with our emotions. The Apostle Paul says, Mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's letting someone know you're there. I'm locked in on you. I'm listening. And then three, the third step in relationship nowness is let them know that what they're saying matters. Not that you have to agree with them. Not that you have to even like what they're saying. You're interested in what they're saying because you're interested in the person. You care about what they're saying because you care about the person. One effective way of doing this, Jesus modeled it all the time, is to ask questions. A conversation starts, ask a question, a follow-up question. In my experience, if you ask two to three questions, you go to a much greater depth right away. Somebody says something to you instead of, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, just say, well, tell me more about that. Why did you, you feel that way? What was the emotions you were feeling when that happened to you? Woo, deep dive. That's relationship nounness. Let them see see them, hear them, let them know that what they're saying matters. Here's another one. So that's one. This is is relationship gold. I'm telling you. Miracle grow. John Gottman is a a researcher of relationships from the University of Washington. John and his team have done more, I think, in the world to study relationships to tell us what goes well and what doesn't go well. My wife and I spent some time reading one of his books uh, this summer in regards to marriage. It was fantastic. And one of John's things that's just stuck with me from that book and really affected me. I don't do it great yet, but I'm trying, is John said, all of us in connected relationship with one another are offering bids of intimacy. Bids of intimacy. He said, it's like notifications on your phone. It's like you get a text ping, or you get an email, or you get a a Facebook notification. You know someone's trying to connect with you. John said, that's going on all the time. We just miss it most of the time. It's people reaching out saying, I want to connect with you, and we do it awkwardly. And we, we, we hide a lot while we do it. So he said, you got to watch, John says. And he says, you can do it verbally or non-verbally. Verbally, verbal bids of intimacy is like, hey, how was your day? Or did you see that game last night? Or I just, I just read this book or this article today that's incredible. Are, are you going to the party tonight? Or if you're a little kid, it could be as simple as a knock-knock joke. Those are bids of intimacy. And so often we we don't respond to them. We miss them. And we miss an opportunity to invest in the relationship. John said there's a direct correlation between bids of intimacy and relational health. Direct. He said they watch couples in labs again and again and again and again. And you can give nonverbal bids of intimacy. It can be a smile, an expression on a face that's inviting for conversation, a grimace, or Tears. I read that God didn't God put our tear ducts right here and not like in our armpits, so we'd have to be vulnerable. And I don't know how many times over the years I've greeted one of you out front and been like, "Hey, how's it going this week?" And you're just like, "Oh," and if I my response was like, "Okay, good to see you," I wouldn't be a pastor for long. And that's how we carry ourselves, though. Tears can be that. It, it's so meaningful to me when people in my life, my daughters, my wife, people in my close circle of intimacy, reach out and ask me about something that I care about. They notice they're offering or responding to a bit of inspiration. I just feel it in here. It feels so amazing. In my house, I'm the only one that cares at all about sports. And that's okay. I'm grieving that before the Lord, but it's the reality. But my daughter and wife sometimes will reach out and ask me. How are the Cowboys doing? How are you doing? And it's hard to miss the bit of instancy because I'm usually this year watching them and weeping openly. (laughs) And so, you know, it's not a hard one to miss. But in all seriousness, that's meaningful to me. They don't care at all about that. They think it's silly. But they don't think I'm silly. They love me. And for all of you out there, and there's many of you, you know who you are that text me and talk smack to me about the Cowboys and all that, just know I love it. Makes me feel loved, thank you. I know that's weird. Here's my challenge to all of us as a community of Jesus followers, as we look to him as our model. My challenge is this week, this week, invite somebody out to a meal. Whew, I, you feel it, you feel it right there with the challenge. Whew. Now, this could be somebody that you're already in, in close relationship with, that perhaps that intimacy has been waning, that you're not feeling as known and love, that you're disconnected from them, great. Ask them out to a meal. It could be somebody on the periphery of your community in life, a neighbor, somebody at work, somebody here at church. Many of you are doing the rooted experience. Maybe it's somebody in your rooted group. And you're like, I think I like them. I think this could be a, a deal. And ask them out to a meal. And if you're able to pay for the meal and put your phone away... <laughs> And give them your eyes. Give, give them your ears. And let them know they matter. Because so many people in this world, in this church, don't feel like they matter. Followers of Jesus, let's change that. Because the one we follow made sure everyone knew that they mattered. And this is a way that we can do it. I... I uh I read a a guy who was studying funerals, and he he did all this analysis on funerals. And he said at the average funeral that that he went to, only 10 people cried. I was like, geez, 10 people? John Orberg asked this great question. He says, who's going to cry at your funeral? And that's coming before you know it. I'm not trying to be morbid, just real. Who's going to cry at your funeral? I got a call this past August from a, a good pastor friend of mine, um, and he, he, I was out east on vacation, picked up, said, hey, man. He said, hey, did you hear that, that Paul died? I'm like, what? And this was, we had been part of this 18-month experience together with, with pastors and leaders from around the country. And Paul was one of our leaders. So We had done four retreats with him. We had gotten to know him. And Paul was a, a pastor and a theologian and a spiritual director. He was just this remarkable man that was just mentored all of us in intimacy. If you met Paul, you knew that he was totally with you in the moment. And Paul cried more than any human I've ever been around in my life. He cried tears of joy, he cried tears of sadness. He'd overcome a lot in his life. It annoyed me at first, to be honest. I'm like, stop your crying. But that was about me, not Paul. And his funeral was remarkable. You, we, didn't, we didn't have time to get everybody else on the stage that wanted to give testimonies. And they were earnest and they were true and there was deep laughter and deep joy and deep sadness and deep mourning. I'm like, oh, I want my life to be like that. It's because Paul understood you got to make friends. You got to cultivate intimacy. He never wrote any books. He wasn't famous. But his, his death has left a huge hole in this city and my network of pastor friends because he knew about intimacy. And I want to I be like that. Who's going to cry at my funeral? I don't know. I don't know. But I hope they're not crying because they're like, oh, he was a, he was a good preacher. He's, he's a nice guy. Or for some other surface reason that really doesn't matter. I hope people cry at my funeral, in- including the people that carry my coffin, because they knew me, even in my brokenness, and there's a lot of it, and they loved me. That's going to take work because cultivating intimacy It takes time. It takes attention. Will we do it, followers of Jesus? I hope so. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you for the life of your son and the incarnate God on full display. Just, we just struggle, God, in relationship. We do. And He showed us what it's like to be human. He showed us what it's like to step out and be known and loved and to live with vulnerability Help us. This is our mission here, to follow Jesus and share his love. Help us to do that. We need help. Even as that challenge was given, I pray your Holy Spirit would be active in this room right now, Father. Ruling our hearts and our minds, helping us to know who that person is you want us to invite to a meal. And may they, all over the city this week, may they be amazing meals. And may we grow in our intimacy with one another and with you. Thank you for the privilege to be invited in this adventure you call life and for showing us the way. We pray this in Christ's name, all God's people said.